the physiotherapy is transformational and the health economic value proposition warrants a premium price, which is not enough included today in the DRGs for the stenting procedure. So, and we don't want it to be there because we want to make sure that the value is recognized and reflects the health economic value proposition. So we have really embarked into working prospectively on creating codes, creating you know coverage and uh, over time getting the right amounts of payment for the therapy. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Olivier Delporte, who has more than 20 years of sales, marketing, and general management experience, mostly in the medical device space. In 2016, he became the CEO of Miracor Medical, a medtech company based in Belgium. Under Olivier's guidance, Miracor is advancing its flagship Pixo treatment for severe myocardial infarction. Here for you the key learnings that we discussed in this conversation. First, keep collecting data even after you get regulatory approval. Generating strong clinical evidence through randomized trials substantiates the value of your technology to patients, doctors, and payers even after you've hit the market. Second, Miracor Medical takes advantage of remote monitoring tools to make its clinical trials more efficient and cost-effective. Consider going virtual using high-end surgical monitoring platforms like Avail or Explore Surgical. You can also use more common video conferencing systems for less complicated procedures. Third, focus on long-term fundraising goals and aim to raise more money than you think you need. You want to be prepared should you encounter development delays or challenges down the road. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I wanted to let you know that we just released the first volume of MedSider Mentors, a print-based book that summarizes the key learnings from my favorite MedSider interviews over the past six months. Look, I fully realize it's tough to listen or read every MedSider interview that comes out, even the best ones, but there are so many valuable lessons you can glean from the founders and CEOs that join our program. So that's why we decided to create MedSider Mentors. It's a way for you to learn from the best thought leaders in our space in one central place. Here's a teaser of what you'll see in this first volume. Gar Hong Kong, founder of HealthQuest Capital, teaches you how to successfully pitch your startup. Patricia Ziliak, CEO of Ivinson's, discusses what you really need to know about clinical trials. Jared Bauer, CEO of Ionic Sciences, shares best practices for avoiding obstacles in your startup journey. That only scratches the surface, so if you're interested in learning more, head over to medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. If you're a premium MedSider member, you'll get free digital access and a print version sent straight to your door. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. In addition to every volume of MedSider Mentors, you'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Erica Rogers, CEO of Silk Road Medical, Dr. David Albert, founder of LiveCore, and so many others. Learn more by visiting medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash mentors. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Olivier, thanks for coming on MedSider. Hopefully I pronounced your first name correctly. <laughs> you do. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. I, I know uh, we, we chatted about this a little bit bef- beforehand, but um, one of my one of my boys is named Oliver. So it's just it's natural for me to say Oliver, you know, which I think, uh, you know, Americans would would pronounce maybe your name that way. But uh, in France, it's uh, maybe maybe you maybe is it Olivier, right? Is that the it's, yeah, Olivier, though I was born <laughs> in the US, but more more European than American. 
Very good. Very good. Um, let us, I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation and learning, learning a little bit more about your, uh, your background, um, and then what, uh, what you're building at, at, at Miracore. But, um, with that said, let's start out with, uh, with, with that, uh, without going into the, you know, too far into the weeds, um, tell us a little bit more, uh, about, uh, what you were doing leading up to, uh, taking on the, the CEO role at, uh, at Miracore. Yep. Thanks, Scott. So uh, after an MBA at the University of Chicago, I actually started with Guidant, as many medtech people. Guidant was a great school. Uh, started in pure sales in endovascular. So I sold carotid stents, SFA stents, renal stents for a couple of months, and then uh, had the chance to move over to marketing and to interventional cardiology. So still on the stent side, and you know managed a couple of projects, and in the end launched drug eluting stents for guidance, which had become Abbott Vascular hmm. after the purchase and split with and between Boston and Abbott. But I had always been uh, tempted by ventures, entrepreneurial you know, companies, and I moved over from the large companies to a small one, and I joined a very small company then called Triton Medical, basically an interventional cardiology coronary bifurcation stent company, which was... Uh, uh, supported and funded, among others, by PTV and Rick Anderson. And we launched the product. We ran an IDE study. That company was uh, not sold for actually interesting reasons, good learning reasons. And in 2013, I moved from that company to interventional pulmonology and uh, was with a company called Numerix, Bay Area-based uh, corals company for emphysema patients, uh, similar to what Pulmonics is doing today. In the space, that company was commercial and was sold to BTG. And after integrating Numerex into BTG, it lasted a good year. Then I was recruited at Miracle, and that's indeed 2016. Got it. And you're you're uh, just kind of going back to your early days at Guidance. You know, after your after your MBA at um, at Booth, right? Was it? Is that where your MBA is at? Yep, that's yeah, correct. Okay. Yep. Was that was that? Did you move over to to Europe? You know, immediately, or was that was that time here in the U.S. Yeah, no, great question. I actually was hired in Europe okay. from the from the get-go. So I, I finished my MBA and interviewed with the Guidance Europe team. My family had been based in Belgium and Guidance was headquartered in Belgium at the time. So I started in pure sales in the Belgian sales organization and then moved over to the Europe, Middle East Africa headquarters, which was based there. Okay, got it. Got it. Makes sense. All right, so uh, you know, kind of back back into into the the 2016 17 timeframe, you join Miracor. Tell us a little bit more about is it is it the the Pixo system? Is that am I pronouncing that correctly? Tell us a little bit about what it is and kind of how the idea came to be. Yeah. So the Pixo system, indeed, it is Pixo. Okay. And Pixo stands for pressure controlled intermittent coronary sinus occlusion. So what's important there is the coronary sinus part which is the venous part of the heart, you know, the occlusion part. And it's basically a minimal, mini invasive approach to occluding the coronary sinus, which of course drains a good part of the blood flow from the heart. And so the pixel concept from, comes from cardiac surgery, where, you know, starting in the years 50 with the Bex procedure, you know, cardiac surgeons had been retroperfusing venous blood through the coronary sinus, and there were different applications like cardioplegia, retroperfusion, and what happened over time is that, or the Miracle founder, 
who is a professor of cardiac surgery from Vienna in Austria, you know, worked on animals and he developed a mini invasive way to occlude the coronary sinus as he had observed, you know, the beneficial effects in patients, but it had to be worked on, treated a number of animals, heart size reductions, and really led to the inception of the company in 2008. And then what happened is they had worked mostly on uh, ICSO. So there wasn't the P, the P stands for pressure control because they did not have the technology for that. But then what the company did once Miracor was incepted is on the base of technology really made the therapy move from ICSO to PIXO, adding the P, which is the pressure control, thanks to the technology. And it really made the therapy become safe, automatic, patient-specific, and reproducible. And that's where we are today. It's on the base of technology and software and the learnings from the past that the therapy is what it is today. Got it. And so give us a sense for the timeline. When did the company make this pivot to incorporating the, the pressure element? Was that prior to you joining? It was prior to me joining. Okay. Indeed. So okay. that really happens between 2008 and 2011, 2012. And then there were the first series of patients treated, the very first clinical studies, I would say. And I joined in 2016 when, yeah, there was already the product was existent. We, we changed an updated product, but the product existed already yet, you know, we've worked on the next generation one since then. Okay. Okay. Got it. And I know that the, the, the folks listening to this can't see the very cool looking system that I can see in the, in, in, in your background here on, on, on zoom, but, um, I'm, I'm assuming when you joined in 2016, it didn't look nearly as finished um, as the as the system that I'm I'm seeing here. So is that is that the case? Um, you know, what, I guess what what generation are you on now? And tell us a little bit more about sort of where the company's at from a life cycle perspective. Yeah. Um, so from a look standpoint, it actually looked pretty similar. I mean, this one is a little bit slicker. Though I envision, you know, we're in the in the world of technology and iPads, so I'd love it to be an iPad mm. uh, kind, but that's a few years out. So the the company is really, uh, you know, at the stage of first. Let me talk about the unmet need or the patients we're we're targeting. We're really addressing acute infarct patients. So that is our patient group or patient beachhead the largest or highest risk patients of these highest of these acute infarct patients are ST elevation MI patients. So patients who, if they're not treated, they will die. Those are the ones we address with our PIXO system. With PIXO, uh, we really aim at improving the microcirculation of these patients. We have treated by now 320 patients. We're 32 full-time equivalents, so employees or full-time consultants in the company. And we have CMARC in Europe, breakthrough designation in the US from the FDA. And we expect actually the approval from the FDA for our IDE study in the coming months. So from a, that's from a regulatory standpoint where we stand. And from a where we're looking, where are we going towards? Uh, you know, while we have CMARC, our focus is on generating strong clinical evidence. So we're not in a let's use CMARC and go all out. We are putting most of our efforts and most of our focus on clinical evidence. So we have a currently almost finished randomized study in Europe for anterior STEMI, 
and that will lead to the start of our IDE study in the US in a couple of quarters. And then we started a second randomized study and a second indication inferior STEMI a couple of months back. And, and commercially, you know, we use our CMARC, but very selectively to generate awareness, to support reimbursement, to, to develop training tools as well and improve tools. But uh, it's not a go all out at sales and revenue as it could have been, you know, 10, 15 years ago in the medtech world. Got it. Yeah, I, I think well, I, I, that's definitely something I want to circle back around to get your kind of your thoughts on um, how that how that shifted, right? And and I'm, I'm sure that's very intentional, you know, as you're leading the company company forward. But before we get into some of those more specific questions, um, help me understand kind of like what from a, from a patient physician standpoint, like what if if I if I'm suffering from a you know a, an MI. And a physician doesn't have access to the, the Miracor technology. What are, what are they using now? How are they treating? Uh, 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 yeah, so there is there is no predicate. So today, okay. when an ST elevation MI patient, you know, feels chest pain, calls nine one one, is brought to a hospital. Typically, and hopefully for the patient, he or she is brought to the cath lab, and there is you know cath lab service in that hospital, and then the interventional cardiologist will uh, perform an emergency stenting procedure to unclog the artery, which is blocked. If you think about it, the, the STEMI patient population is one of the only state, I would say patient populations where you save a life uh, in interventional cardiology because you save it instantly. The chances of that patient dying if the patient is not stented are very, very high. And so today, the state of the art is a, a PCI, which is the angioplasty procedure whereby a stent will be implanted in that occluded artery to open it up and leave it open. And what the PIXO aims at doing and has been shown to do in studies today is to reduce the infarct size. And the infarct size is basically the, the quantity of the left ventricle. It's the mass of the left ventricle, which is necrosed or dead a couple of days or a couple of weeks or months after the acute infarct. And that is Basically, the, the highest risk patients will have up to a third of their left ventricle, which is dead after the large infarct. And what PIXO does is reducing the infarct size, which you know, should translate into less mortality and less heart failure hospitalization. So there's a very strong link between infarct size and these two clinical endpoints that matter. Got it. That's super helpful. Okay, very good. With that said, um, Olivier, you mentioned you just mentioned um, a few of the, kind of the milestones you've been able to achieve so far, right? CE Mark, I think in 2020, breakthrough device designation from FDA. When you think about the past, you know, four or five years, kind of working your way through some of these, you know, challenging regulatory waters, you know, what are some of the key lessons that you've learned along the way, and that that, that may be helpful for other, you know, medtech entrepreneurs that are that are kind of waiting in that in that same boat? Yeah. So I would say work with people who have done it, you know, and, and, and regulatory people are regulatory people are well sought after these days. And there are a number of you know, employees and consultants, but you need people who have done it. It's it makes such a difference to get into the offices of the FDA and have your lead regulatory person know half of the people in the room because he or she have interacted with them in the past. And, and I think that's that's important. And the other advice would be talk to these regulatory agencies, talk to these regulatory bodies. Certainly in the case of FDA, you'll hear them publicly say, talk to us, call us, meet us, 
plan or pre-sub meeting. And I think certainly in the case of the FDA, the, the agency has become very collaborative over the years. So do not hesitate, talk, email, because that, that helps. Yeah, those would be my, my major advices on the regulatory front. Yeah, and it, and it sounds like um, you know your your kind of your your first message is around working with people that have done it before. How important do you think it is uh, to work with you know regulatory you know consultants or agencies that have domain expertise in this clinical area that you're that you're working on? Yeah, I think it helps. You know, it's always the same when you when you recruit recruitment. And recruitment is actually very difficult these days in med tech on both sides of the ocean, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it helps depending on the specificity of the, what I would call the vertical, you know, we're in a, we are in interventional cardiology, depending on the specificity, it, it's anywhere between a nice to have to a must have hmm. in recruitment because every space is different. You know, I'm, 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 I've done most of my career in interventional cardiology, but I'm also involved a little bit in the gastroenterology space, a little bit in neuro and other stuff. It's different. And so having people who, have been in the cardiovascular franchise, you know, and, and working in that vertical, I think helps significantly, but it's, it's not a must for every vertical. Got it. Got it. I love that. I love framing it around that kind of that nice to have, but not, not hundred percent critical, right. A, a, as an example, you know, someone with, someone with, you know, deep uh, experience in regulatory that may not have as much, you know, uh, experience in, in the interventional cardiology space, they could still be a valued, you know, a valued partner. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I also think, you know, diversity mm-hmm. and diversity of prior experiences is a big plus. Yeah. You know, it, it helps people because things are done differently in different verticals, go back to that term. And I think the, the experience of, you know, regulatory executives can be a big asset as well. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, let let's kind of use that as a segue into something you mentioned earlier, right? And your focus on um, on really building out clinical evidence. And I think if I if my notes are correct, you're you're currently enrolling patients in your second randomized study. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yes. Okay. You mentioned kind of this this sort of this shift where you know ten years ago in MedTech, once you had regulatory you know clearance or approval, it was sort of game on from a commercial standpoint. You know, now um, you know you're you're running Miracor, and de- you definitely have a, a, a different strategic sort of uh, perspective on that. So tell us a little bit more about that and how you're just your your general thoughts around uh, around you know building out uh, a clinical roadmap. Yeah, uh, so I think yeah, the need for clinical evidence and strong clinical evidence has definitely increased over the years, and there are differences across the medtech verticals. Certainly in cardiovascular, you know, interventional cardiology, structural heart, and all the related, today randomized trials are the name of the game. And, and the anecdote is that when I started with Miracor and my, my pre, pre-approval discussions with the board, uh, they had not done a randomized trial before, but I, I was strongly in favor and actually saying, you know, I'll, I'll join, but we have to do a randomized trial uh, because I really believe it's needed. And in, in today's world, in interventional cardiology without randomized evidence, you, you won't get to guidelines and, you know, which means you won't get to reimbursement. So I think, yeah, th- those days of 10, 15 years ago are, are gone. And today we have decided basically to build our fundamentals on strong evidence, especially because it's, it's a big unmet need, you know, the acute infarct, but it's also an unmet need where there have been a couple of attempts over the last decades, which have failed which is why the standard of care today is still stenting. I mean, stenting has helped these patients, 
but at the cost of heart failure hospitalization. So basically the STEMI patients less because they are saved by the stent, but they leave the hospital with part of their left ventricle, which is necrosed, and over time they develop heart failure. So the goal is really to decrease the infarct size to have less heart failure in these patients. And so we've decided to, to generate data and we're doing that you know, in a start with the highest risk patients and we'll expand over time. So right now, the first randomized study that we started before COVID is in anterior ST elevation MI patients and TIMI01. So the most you know, high risk, a bit like what Edwards and Medtronic have done in TAVI, which I often refer to, the model is beautiful. That's you know the, the poster child of market development. Start with highest risk and expand over time on the base of evidence. So we've started with anterior STEMI TIMI01, and that study in Europe is about to close, actually, enrollments in a few months. So we're, we're almost uh, enrolled. We expect completion of enrollments by September. And that's going to be the, the segue uh, also to starting a very similar study in the U.S. Well, for the FDA, the patients will be enrolled in U.S., Canada, and, and most likely Europe as well. And so with, this, with that same optic of building evidence per patient group, Last year, the first in-man experience in the next patient group, the inferior ST elevation MI patients, was published. It was positive. It was a first in-man, so nine patients compared to 18 control patients, and it was very positive. So on the base of that, we've started our second randomized trial in that patient group in Europe as well on an observational basis because we didn't have enough really to have stats. And based on what we learned, in that randomized study, then we will uh, decide, you know, where to go regulatory-wise for indications, and uh, and we might think of, uh, of of you know asking the FDA for another arm in the ID study, for example, or having a parallel study. That's that you know we'll see that with the results when they come. Got it, got it. And so, um, and, and j- just to kind of help help baseline um, for anyone listening, is it really just as as well as myself, you did first in man in Europe, correct? Correct. Nine patients. And then your first RCT was in Europe as well? Were all the sites in Europe? The first RCT, yes, is done in Europe. Okay. Currently, in most of the same sites as the first randomized study. So the PIXOMI1 study is finishing in anterior STEMI. And we have started the PIXO inferior, the PIXOMI5 inferior STEMI in a good portion of the same sites, which have experience. And uh, it will be done in Europe. But okay. the purpose then is to move to the U.S. based on the learnings from that one, as we are doing with the anterior STEMI patient population. Got it. Got it. And that U.S. RCT will that will that serve as your pivotal then? For so the U.S. So the the U.S. IDE study currently, as it's discussed with the agency, is a study for anterior STEMI. Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So first patient indication. Makes sense. So you you definitely have a lot of clinical activity uh, going g- going on. There's no there's no doubt about that. And it sounds like it's really well really well thought out. I, I think most people, including myself, would probably hear this activity and say, "Wow, Olivier, that sounds expensive, right? Um, that that's yes. you know you're having to allocate a lot of a lot of budget towards this. Do you have any thoughts around how to? Um, I mean, everyone knows sort of like you know, clinical trials are expensive, right? But do you have any thoughts around? Or like, how are you thinking about trying to to maximize efficiencies across all of these clinical uh, initiatives? Yes, in our case, it's actually one of the reasons why we did we started the 
inferior semi-randomized trial in Europe and in the same sites because it was synergistic mm. and, and efficient, especially because our patient population is a difficult one because they come 24-7. So to start a site, it takes basically standby. It's like stroke patients. You don't know when they're going to come. And when they come, it's really a matter of minutes. Mm. So we've been synergistic with that. Yet over time, you know, we want to be synergistic in the U.S., I will tell you the, the one thing that is helping us and starting to help us significantly is remote proctoring. You know, COVID has put the spotlights on distance learning, of course, Zoom and Teams-based communications. Well, for communicating with the cat lab, you know, recently we have seen an exponential use of our remote proctoring solution. And we have proctored, we, I mean, our clinical specialists have proctored procedures in some hospitals while they were on the highway, just pulled over in a parking because the hospital called them saying, can you support a procedure via your laptop? And our clinical specialist supported it from, from the car. Another time it, the person was in an airport. Uh, and of course it can be done from home and from anywhere. So that's, that's helping for the learning curve, which fortunately for Pixel, because it's a fairly simple technology is not, many, many procedures, but it's a couple of procedures. The complexity for us is that the patients come 24-7 unannounced. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.